Rondings fam, it's Ron Rapitalo, your host, and you're about to hear an episode with my friend, fellow co-conspirator, and fellow associate partner, Jilsey Consulting, Giovanni Mackey. After talking a little bit about her story and how she came to be, especially elevating her mom as, a, as an entrepreneur and how she created access for Giovanni's family, Giovanni and I started to riff on, well, how do we create access? from an intentional, deep diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging stance. And so it's a real treat. I learned so much when I talked to Giovanni. We could have, like all of my Ronderings guests, chopped it up for a full day, but you get a snippet of the way that we vibe. Check it out. Welcome, Ronderings fan. Got your host here, Ron Rapitalo, and I have my brilliant colleague, fellow associate partner at Agility Consulting and fellow co-conspirator, Trevani Mackey on the mic. Welcome, Trevani, to Ronderings. Hey, Ron. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. When I was thinking about guests, you are an ideal guest uh, prototype because you're someone that I have had lots of deep conversations about, whether it's our work at Agility, DI and anti-racism, talking about family, talking about our love of sports. Is yeah. super <laughs> uber competitive like me? Not a little bit in Austin. I'm just saying, it's like, and Trevani's really competitive. Like, oh, I was like, yeah. I, I'm surprised you didn't kill Allison's favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I like to win. I like to win. <laughs> like, Who plays to lose? That's not fun. Come exactly. Like, <laughs> really, really. Agreed. Oh my God. So Trevani, we're going to start off the episode like I always do with every amazing guest. What is your story? Oh, such a good question. Thought about where to start here. And honestly, I've got to start young. Got to start at the beginning. I grew up in a small town, what used to be a small town called Mount Juliet, Tennessee, mm. right outside of Nashville. And I think it's important to start there because I absolutely felt loved and cared for. And I think there were moments where I looked around and realized, hey, there's not really many people here who look like me. In my elementary school, I was always the only brown child in the class. I later learned there were only like three of us in the grade. Mm. When I went to daycare after school, it was just me and my sister, none of my teachers, none of my friends. And when I went to church, I was surrounded. Those are my family members. I went to church with my family. Uh, and I was outside of our, our small town. But in general, I grew up in a really kind, loving town where nobody looked like me. And I made a bunch of associations around that, you know, not knowing. But we moved at some point, and my dynamic shifted where I was one of many. And I was like, whoa, what is this? Um, at what age was that? Uh, probably fifth grade. Okay. We moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee. My mom had a really great opportunity. I'll talk about that in a second. But um, I felt that shift where I started to see other people who looked like me. And I think I made a bunch of connections to when I get to experience that and when I don't. And I think if I zoom out, what I found is that when I'm experiencing community and like connection to culture, I also see a shift in opportunities available to me. 
And so I remember having a conversation with my mom around, you know, moving and finding a home and trying to figure out the right neighborhood to live in. And I was like, oh, mom, you know, as a teenager, these are, these are really pricey. Like, we're going to live here? Mm. She's like, well, this is where opportunities are. I was like, what do you mean? I was like, why can't we live over there? Like, that was a, that was a decent house. She's like, yeah, we kind of need to be in this zip code. You know, teenage me didn't make any sense. And what she broke down for me is that depending on where you live, the schools are different. Like, there's a program at this school that your teacher told me you're going to be a good fit for. You know, teenage me didn't understand the, the power of a gifted program or a gifted label or the tracking that goes along with the school you go to and the AP classes available. But my mom did. She was very clear that I don't actually care how much this neighborhood costs. This is where we need to live. Because if we just move a couple streets over, you might not have access to that thing. And so again, I was thrown back into a really nice, kind community. People who didn't look like me. Only one in my class. Only mm. one in the gifted program. Okay. Only one in the top 10, you know. And started to make those associations that, man, maybe people who look like me don't do school. <laughs> maybe that's, like, not a thing. Is it cool to love school and love learning and have good grades and take honors classes, AP classes, and look like me? And I didn't find that that was the case. And so I think it just triggered a bunch of questions about who I have to be to fit in and what does it mean I want out of life, <laughs> you know? Like, do I have to pick can I be in community and surrounded by people who get me and listen to the music I listen to and watch the same stuff over the weekend that I watched? Oh. If I want access, do I have to shift? Uh, and, and I found my home at Howard University, as you know, every other bison knows when you step on campus at Howard, as I did as a sophomore in high school, just trying to understand how school works and how the world works. I looked around and I was like, oh my gosh, there are so many people here who look like me. And guess what? They're going to class and they're kind of excited about it. And they've created, you know, student union was just like such an active part of the culture. Mm. And it was the first time I looked around and saw people who looked like me who loved learning. You were it in was, It was shocking. Yeah. It, listen, everybody knows that's why it's called the Mecca, but. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's a little bit frustrating for me that that story is true for so many people. It's it's so common that there were so many of you know me's showing up on at Howard and noticing the same thing. Hey, is this your first time in an experience like this? And then there were some that were different, right? There were some people who I knew, a lot of people coming from Gary, Indiana, that. I was like, this is interesting. Gary is a city where black people work hard, thrive, yep. and have access. That's cool. But that, that's not my city. That's not where I was from. That was not my norm. But it was really nice to feel like, okay, I fit here. And that took, that took 18 years <laughs> to, to experience that. So I would say yeah. looking around at my community, trying to figure out how my identity fits into that, and I was, you know, I was a lover of school. I was that kid who loved homework. <laughs> you know, just like I want to mm. do all the boxes on the page. Right. And trying to figure out where I fit, I think that was important. I would say that 
I don't know. Keep going or stop. I can I can chat with you all day. Keep going. Keep, okay. Keep going. <laughs> you know, I love hearing okay. the story. I think the audience okay. is going to love it too. So there's there's two other things that I think are a huge part of my story. One is coming from a small town with people who didn't look like me. Uh, the second is being a child of a entrepreneur mom. My mom has worked at McDonald's since she was 16. She's still there 40 plus years at McDonald's. And she's um, loving it. Wink, wink. McDonald's <laughs> <laughs> um, even have to pay me. Look at I that. Can't tell you, I can't tell you how many Facebook posts she has where that is the headline. Um, she is loving it. She very much loves That's beautiful. the career that she's been able to carve. Because, you know, I would say people assume that if you've chosen to work at McDonald's, then you've, you've settled, right? Or you're, you didn't have other opportunities. And, and it, that just has not been the case for her. Mm-hmm. She's been grinding her whole life, right? And she's yeah. earned every bit of what she has. And so, you know, very proud to be her daughter. But I think the thing that stands out to me is, is how she led. Um, you know, in, I guess, late 90s, early 2000s, McDonald's was intentional about bringing minority business owners into the fold. And so she didn't become an owner because we were wealthy. That was not the case. Um, she became an owner and assumed the debt of the business, uh, but had some people who believed in her because of her work ethic. And so that was my first job at 14 at McDonald's at my mom's okay. store. Right across Why the street McDonald's from the mall. did you work? Did you do everything? At, like, Well, if you know me, Ron, like I'm a front counter order taker. I'm the person who's taking your order and mm-hmm. making you feel and loved. <laughs> that, that's where I started my customer service orientation. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and so I remember very clearly one day we got super busy and my mom came in and you know how people act when the owner comes in. It's like, ooh, get on your on your get on your game. And she took her jacket off and came in the grill and my and my you know my friend looked at me like, why's your mom on the table why is she making burgers right now i was like because we're busy <laughs> and, and they were like but isn't she the owner and i said yeah what and so you know i will never forget that day and I, I don't know that i've even said that to her but it established for me what leadership looks like leadership is service leadership is side by side leadership is i'm not better than you leadership is you could do what i do like I'm in it with you. She established that for me very early on. And I've always carried that moment as a, a key indicator of how I will know that I'm a leader is that I'm doing the work with people when it's hard, when it's busy, like they have someone they can count on. And that is, that is central to who, who I want to be. So I think it was a huge part of my story. And then pulling it together, I think the third win. So we got, you know, growing up small town, entrepreneur mom, and then I become a mom. You know, I decided at Howard that even though I was studying business, I was like, I love this, but my little sister in the Big Brother Big Sister program is at a really crappy school. Like, I have a really hard time going to visit her. Mm-hmm. She's not learning. She's not getting what she needs. I decided to be a teacher. I joined Teach for America, moved to Atlanta, uh, loved every bit of that. And then when my husband and I got pregnant, I decided I I don't think I can be a teacher anymore. 
And that was scary for me because, you know, that was, that was my identity. Trevani is a teacher. To this day, some of my relatives are like, baby, are you still teaching? I'm like, no, auntie, I don't, I don't have a classroom anymore. <laughs> I don't work in a school anymore. Well, you but you are me. still teaching. It's Listen, very core to who you are, right? It is, it is central. I think I decided to leave the classroom because I had an entrepreneur mom, right? I had a busy mom. And I was very clear that when she was away, she was providing for us. And I wanted to find, you know, space to be present. And I found that when I am so absorbed in my teaching work, I don't know that I'll have space for my kid and like what he's going through and how he's feeling about life. And I think I decided early that I want to be a present mom. And I knew that I wanted to be a leader. And I really had no clue how I could do both of those things. And so I told my principal, I was like, listen, I got to learn how to mom. And, and I'm in this really, really like intense education environment. And I don't know that I'm going to be able to learn how to mom here. Mm. And he was like, well, okay, we've got to figure this out. <laughs> we've got to find a way for you to learn how to mom. Let's figure out what other roles are available because I was incredibly committed to my work. And so I left the classroom, became a, an RTI coordinator, pulling kids, doing small group intervention, and saw the teacher who stepped into my classroom struggling. And I was like, crap. <laughs> I felt so much mom guilt over the 90 kids that I left with the math teacher who was struggling because I was worried about my one. And I was like, oh, that's, that's not cool. My one child will be fine. These 90 kids now need a math teacher who's, who's going to set them up for success. And so I stumbled into coaching. I never had a plan to be a coach. I didn't even know what a coach was. But I was like, this is my teammate, and they're struggling, and I want to, like, support. Because I also want these kids to not, you know, have a year. You know what a year of learning loss can do. It's dramatic. And so I stumbled into coaching and found my purpose. I found it. I was like, this is the thing I was meant to do. I was, I was meant to help people who want to do good things get the stuff out of the way. Like that's what I was put on earth to do. And I was really fortunate that I found it early in my career. And I would say I'm still working on that balance of present mom. <laughs> it's a constant. Mm. But... I think I'm going to continue to look for ways to do work that I care about and balance being a present mom. Uh, I now have three, I have three babies. Oh, yes. Two, two brown boys, uh, Tyson, who's 10, Mike is five and Layla is six months, almost Ooh. seven months. I know. Right. Crazy. And I think like what they do for me is they create this, impatience mm. with with our with our sector with the education space with our nonprofit space i'm impatient about the work because i know what the absence of progress is going to mean for my kids my kids are in our education system now they're in public schools now and i ha i am frustrated that i still have to do the same thing my mom did 30 years ago mm. which is Find a neighborhood where I think they're going to be successful. It's, it's a little bit frustrating that we've not made much progress in that regard. And I spent a lot of my time thinking about how I can contribute to, to moving the needle.
Well, it's such a, there's so many ways to go. I think one thing that comes up because of what you learn from your mom's entrepreneurial spirit, you certainly have it, is this idea of, yes, entrepreneurism is activism, <laughs> yeah. right? And so riff on that a little bit. How have you been able to tie that spirit you learned from your mom, being able to create access points, your mom for you, you for your kids, and using entrepreneurism to entrepreneurship, goodness, I'm really mm -hmm. bad at nouns, to <laughs> be able to create access and create opportunity. Yeah, it's a good question. I guess I, I think I've internalized this idea that just because something doesn't exist doesn't mean it can't. Like, I have friends who will call out a strength in me that I, like, I didn't see for myself, but will say, you're very good at seeing the big picture of a thing and then drilling it down to practicality. And that's like a, not a normal combination of skills because I would find myself visioning like big picture, what needs to be true? What does this look like? But then I'm going to execute it. Like I'm not going to assume that I can hand off the execution to somebody else. I want to be in it with whoever might need to execute this. And so it feels very entrepreneurial to me to, to see a thing, but also realize like nobody's going to write this business plan for you. <laughs> um, you've, you've got to see the vision, but you also have to help people get there. And maybe that's the teacher in me, the coach in me, who's like always backward planning from a big thing to, to make it practical, to make it real. Because I think, you know, lots of people have business ideas, but it's, how do you turn that from a thing that's in your head to a thing everybody else can feel and breathe and move forward? So yeah, I think it is very, very core to how I operate. Yeah. I'm guessing you have learned a lot of that particular skill of visioning to implementation from your mom. Is there a particular story that resonates with your mom taking vision to implementation? It may very well be when she became a franchise owner, right? But there may be other examples because what I've often found is the apple never falls far from the tree. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I, I can't pull up a particular story. I think you're right um, about just the, the act of opening a business in the first place. It's not that I had a, a schema for that. There were, it's not like I knew other people who did that. That wasn't a normal part of my experience. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't something I could talk to my friends about and say like, yeah, my mom owns a business and people like, oh, mine too, right? That didn't happen. It was, it was rare. And so I think I started to understand how rare it was as I talked to people about it. But business ownership was not something I was surrounded by. So maybe it was that. And I think outside of that, it was just her setting a vision for the for our family uh, mm, and getting okay. really clear that we were, we were moving away. Right. And that wasn't a thing that also happened in my family. Everybody kind of was local. As I mentioned, my family went to my church. My church was my family. It was not, yep. they were not two different things. And so for my mom to do a thing that no one had done and there was no roadmap for that, that's scary, right? Like we moved, we didn't have anywhere to live. We didn't know what the community was like. And she was like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this thing with my family and it's risky, but I think it's going to be worth it. So, yeah, I would say just watching her do that. Uh, outside of that, I also had some really great 
opportunities at Howard to learn about business, you know, from the ground up. We had really great relationships with corporate sponsors. So I was exposed to business mm. and, and doing things that didn't exist very regularly. Uh, and I, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I knew everything was business. I understood that very early that even if you do teaching or you do something that feels social or community oriented, you still need to be able to run a business. Everything is business. And so I chose a business major without a ton of clarity on what I was interested in, but it was the right fit for me. And I think I learned a lot about uh, taking a, a seed and trying to convince other people that it's worth their time. I remember sitting in front of our corporate sponsors, pitching ideas very early, right? Like not even knowing Shark that that tank, was a, huh? It was absolutely Shark Tank, right? It was, it was put your suit on, tell people why they should be working with you. My little 18-year-old self was like, I don't even know what I'm talking about, but I, I understood that if you can't convince other people that the thing in your head is powerful and worth paying attention to, then it goes nowhere and you have to, you have to like gain those skills. So I don't know. I don't think I answered your question, but my brain is, is really enjoying the processing about like, what does entrepreneurialism look like? I don't think I realized that that was such a huge part of how I operate. Yeah. Well, I can't help but like jump ahead till today. And this is like, <laughs> Selfishly, because we both are associate partners at Agility Consulting, something that feels incredibly entrepreneurial that we are actively looking to sell is walk it like I talk it. Walk the talk. You know, I, to, I cannot talk about the walk the talk cohort and the, you know, um, incredible event you're pulling off in Nashville in early October without Migos in my head. I, I do think like, I, know. I, I, I have to say, it would be weird if at some point in those three and a half days that the song does not play because it just be like, I, it just, am I, am I off or am I like projecting what should, what, what should not be a part of the musicality of Walker? I, I, I hear your voice every time I'm, I'm doing some planning work that the song is now stuck. I don't know the Migos. It would be amazing if they could show up and perform, but <laughs> it's, uh, I can make probably, I can make a couple of calls. I don't know. I'm just saying. I don't know. We got a budget for it. You know what I mean? Connected. I love that. They're on my running playlist. That, that song is on my. Every time I'm running, that yeah. song is on my playlist. But mm. I think I think you're absolutely right that this is an example of me following in those footsteps and thinking about a thing that doesn't exist and trying to pull it into fruition. In my work, I have the luxury of talking with people about things that they're uncomfortable sharing with anyone else. Right. When I talk like to you my and I clients, your spirits, Shravani. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a lot of weight to hold, but I, I really appreciate it. I wouldn't do it any other way. I, hmm. I don't think it's cool to show up and, and pretend to do work with people like that doesn't resonate with me. So when I get a client who is really trying to understand identity power, bias, privilege at a systemic level. When I get a client who's ready to do that with me, I get so geeked out. I'm like, let's talk about this. Mm. And what I found is that when we can pull away from the surface of 
of showing up like someone who deserves to run the business. And I think that's like, that's usually the barrier is I need to be an expert. I need to show people that I know what I'm talking about because I've been given this really exciting but heavy role of, of running a business or running a people function or running a talent team. But I, but I don't actually know what it means to do that with all identities in mind because there's no roadmap for that. That's not how businesses were built. They were not designed to make space for all identities. That was never the plan. And so as people are trying to understand, you know, this new workforce, which demands to be seen and, and cared for appropriately, there's no roadmap. There's no way of like, oh, if I just do this, then people of color will want to work here. There isn't, right? There are, you know, there are emerging disciplines in in universities there are new programs that people can study there are tons of books but there aren't a ton of like organizations especially in our sector who say we we figured it out we know how to make sure that people of color women others who who identify with marginalized groups can have a good experience here and be seen and safe and valued and grow and thrive People haven't figured that out. And so I think it requires an entrepreneurial mindset to say, like, well, what should it look like? And how do we break down the practical steps so that anybody can do it, right? You don't need to be an expert, but you need to be vulnerable. And so what I want to do is build a cohort of leaders who are ready to have that conversation and Mm. say, we kind of need to break this thing down and rebuild it. And that makes it look like I don't know what I'm doing and I'm uncomfortable with that. But I really care that people who don't look like me or people who look differently than me or have different backgrounds can do the work of my mission. I, I think it's really clear that they care about that. Right. So there's so many missteps, to your point. You're, not, you're just talking. There's, there's no walk behind your talk. And people see it and they feel it. And they, they wonder, like, is it me? Am I the issue? Am I the problem? And, and then you look at the system and you're like, no. We haven't figured it out. So I want to bring some folks together who are ready to talk about it, provide some learning. That's my teacher heart. I can't, you know, I can't wait to be facilitating people in person again yeah. and, and really help them understand why their systems don't work for everybody. Mm. What seems so core to that, Trevani, the many, many conversations we have is I think it's easy for someone to not understand why systems don't work if they haven't done that deeper self-work about the impact of the multiplicity of their identities on others, right? Yeah. A lot of my experience, you know, we're in two sides, two different sides of our business, yet very focused on talent equity. I find in the executive search practice, right, that there's a spectrum of how clients show up in conversation with me and my team to be able to talk about equity. Yeah. Right? You know? And that does impact how they're assessing candidates. That does impact how we are putting it in front of them at some level, right? Because I think the, the mm-hmm. exercise of figuring out what a client wants and the matchmaking commitment to equity, I would argue that historically executive search has not been built with equity in mind at all. I mean, it's embarrassing oh, to see not. some search firms who put out rates of like, we have placed 30, 40% people of color. I'm like, you good on that? Really? Yeah. I know it's a throwaway stat that's not really like up in flashing lights, you know what I'm saying? Like a Kanye Mm -hmm. joint, but it's not, it's there. And it's just like, but what are we committed to? What's the bottom line? I think where 
obviously with us coming together as agility consulting, especially you and I, is you're trying to build something that we know doesn't exist because it's not supposed to exist based on historically how power and privilege has been built in this country. Yeah. Right. And so it takes a leap of faith to say there are people who are willing to go on this ride, whether it's walk the talk, it's doing an executive search with me and my team. It is doing a performance management revamp with you and your team, right? To say we are creating something that has not existed, that we've never seen, yet we believe that because of our values, we have to do better and create. And that's going to be uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Well, I think you hit it, right? The values piece. But I would love to to double click on that for a second because I think it requires people to really examine their values and not from a philosophical, what am I putting on my website standpoint, but also if you have to choose between two candidates and one of them is highly credentialed, right? Comes with... (laughs) There we go. You're laughing because I know you get it. Yeah. comes with the pedigree and the candidate who has, you know, the experience who can do the work, everybody's default is that pedigree. And what we don't interrogate is why is that? It's because we value that. Society has told us that this is valuable and, and maybe nothing else is as valuable. And you have to disrupt that. And I think when, when we're coaching clients, we're always talking about some really practical scenarios, like if we're doing a compensation study, like, are you okay to pay someone with a lot of tenure more than someone who's high-performing? And the clients go, wait, well, let me think about that for a second. Right. And this is really about what we value. Do you value this? And now does your system re- reflect what you value? And I think what people are starting to say is, I think we value DEI, right? At the core, we believe in it. It feels important. It sounds like there's a lot of good data that if we do it right, our business will improve. Mm. But it means you have to devalue something else. And that is the hard part, where you're going to replace, you know, your historical values with new ones. That is uncomfortable to say, like, no, you're not going to get a leg up because you're pedigreed. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Right. And I think, you know, my take on how search has historically worked is you get hired for two reasons. You get hired because of your connection or your competency. And so for so long, (laughs) hiring has been connection based. And, you know, we understand how bias works. Like you're so much more likely to have connection to someone who looks like you, who went to the schools you went to, who did the program you did, right? That connection is automatically there you feel like you can relate to them and so when I talk to people of color about well how do I get access well you need to figure out how to connect you need to go beneath the surface and connect with people because you probably do have common values but there's an assumption that there's nothing to connect on Uh, and so that's one and then the other one which is my probably my favorite thing to talk about which is competency we assume people don't have skills because they haven't done a thing. But man, if people hadn't looked at my mom and said like, hey, I think mm-hmm. you could run a business. <laughs> like you, I think you could run a business. Like you don't have the degree or you haven't been to school, but 
you have a, a bunch of things that matter. And so right. let's try this. And that's how people who look like me get access. But I think more often than not, nobody's looking for that. Nobody's really trying to understand what are the skills you have beneath the surface and how do I help you try something new? Yeah. Your brand and the places that you went to school or worked and your connections become a proxy for quality, right? I think absolutely. when I think about this as a little egotistical here, as a former neuroscience major yeah. studies, who had studied this <laughs> stuff in college, right? Yeah. Is that our brains are pattern recognizers slash yeah. fill in the blankers. Our brains, there are lots of examples. The, the blind spot in your field of vision is an example of our brains filling in things all the time. Yeah. We do not, we have this sliver, right? Where our optic nerve and our retina intersect that you just do not have, but you don't mm -hmm. notice it because your brain fills it in. Yeah. And so we have a tendency to want to make approximations for lots of things in life, right? I think it's by design. It's not, mm -hmm. not a good thing or bad thing. It, it, for me, it's just, there's this level of like, what is, right? But yeah. what is and its impact, I think is the thing that we have to examine, right? Because everyone's lived experience. I think something, um, I'm gonna shout out to our former colleague, Kevin Bryant here, that we mm -hmm. did a workshop years ago, Kev. Who, right? <laughs> um, is we are not claiming to be DEI experts. We are claiming to be experts on a lived experience in this space. And yeah. I think when you tell people that, they go, oh, wait a second. Like, yeah, I, I got some opinions about my lived experience. Like, well, you should. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. if folks haven't started to examine that, it's going to be really hard to be able to assess and, 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 and dismantle systems, right? Because yeah. you haven't been able to look in the mirror yourself. Like if I take, I think a lot of what, you've probably experienced, right, um, when you're working with leaders is that I think a lot of leaders tend to be, especially white leaders in my experience, be really heady around talking about race, right? Because they've been taught to be mm -hmm. heady about it, right? If you think about the brilliant Glenn Singleton's book, Courageous Conversations Around Race, right? I always go back to the matrix. Every, any time I'm talking to people about race, I'm like, hmm, where do they fall in that matrix? Mm -hmm. Right? And it's not to say that any of the one is better than the other per se, but if you stay in one quadrant, it limits your ability to connect with people. That's all it really yeah. is. If I think about that matrix, right, it's about deepening humanity with people because I think a lot of our work, Giovanni, is about how do we have people deepen the humanity within themselves? They look at themselves with a level of like care and love to say, well, this is who I am. And what are the parts about it that I want to start getting better? Because if I don't think about getting myself better and how I'm seeing my store and experiencing people, I can't mm -hmm. in any shape or form be able to create systems for liberation and love. I, yeah. I just don't think it's possible, right? So I think that's the brilliance of what you're doing with, with Walk the Talk and generally brilliance of you, our equitable talent systems team, what we do at Agility Consulting is that, right? Because that's the work. You, people have to yeah. do the inner work before they start doing outer work. Yeah, there's something about, you're touching on reflection that stands out to me. I think, I don't know who, who quoted this to me, but this is something I heard that has stuck with me that if you have 10 years of experience and you've done the same thing every year, you have one year of experience. But if you have 10 years of experience and you reflect between years and figure out, okay, what did I do well? What worked, what didn't work? And what am I doing differently? 
then you've got 10 years of experience, right? It's really about how you're building and learning and shifting. That's what growth looks like. And I think that the EI lens is no different. Mm. If you've never thought about how your identity connects to what you've gotten access to do, then you're at the very beginning of your journey. <laughs> you know, like your your identity is shaping what you've gotten access to do, but you've never paused to think about how, right? And if you are running an organization that is perpetuated without your intent, you don't even have to intend it. And I think I think that's why people get uncomfortable because if they analyze it, they're like, well, I didn't intend this. I never wanted this to be how it is, but the default is unfair. The default is lean into wherever the, ma the majority wants to go. And I think what I'm asking people to do is reflect with me on even with the best intentions, are the outcomes equitable? Does everyone have access? And I think more often than not, people are like, no. And I think the thing that is always exciting for me to see about my clients when we get to the end of a project is that they say, well, this actually is better for everyone. This is not just about people of color, even though it is. Right. This is better for everyone. Like our white staff are wondering the same things. We haven't answered these questions for them. Mm -hmm. But by default, they still had access. Right. That's the difference. Right. Is the system works for everybody. But we assume that if we create systems that work for black and brown people, that they won't work for white people. That's the assumption is that, yes, there is some loss, but it doesn't mean the system can't work for both, right? And I think that's what I get excited about doing. There's no, there's no pathway for that. I think with affirmative action, people felt like that's progress for some and not for others. And it doesn't have to look like that. I think we can re-envision a world where everyone has access with the right competencies. And I think that that is just not something we're talking enough about. Yeah. So I'm going to design with me here, Trevani. I'm going to get sure. very big here. So if we created a system that truly worked for all of us, and we'll get really micro. I mean, that, that's really big. Like design for all of us. What kind of system, Ron? Let's yeah, narrow yeah. it down. I think a sweet spot that you have from my, my getting to know you professionally. Performance yeah. management. If we were to design a performance management system that worked for everyone, in yeah. particular, people of color, in particular, black folks, in particular, yep. black women. Yep. My favorite. What does that, <laughs> that look like, Trevani? Because that, that yeah. don't exist nowhere. Yep. Good, good question. So I think the first barrier is that the expectations are not explicit. And what we like to do is help people get clear on what do you actually expect? And that's where those cultural differences show up, where we don't see success the same way across our cultures, and we don't value the same things. Again, back to that, what do you actually value? Because what's valued is what gets rewarded. Gets, that's what gets recognized. And so in the unpacking of, of the expectations, we can start to bring to the surface some things that don't work for everybody. And I think, right. you know, looking for people to be assertive sometimes is valuable. And in other cultures, people are told, no, mm -hmm. be a listener, be a facilitator, be humble. That's, right. that's who we are as a people. And so 
we create, you know, talent systems with that in mind, and you can get explicit with people about, hey, this is what strong performance looks like here. Let me write it down. These are the things we expect people to do every day. Now, let's interrogate that. Should we have these expectations? What do these expectations say about our identity? And what are we perpetuating? And when people do that, they go, actually, maybe people don't have to do it this way. Maybe people could do it a different way and still be successful. And let's create some room for identity and difference and dissent because people are bringing new thinking to our workforce. But until those expectations get explicit, then no one's unpacking them. We're just like showing up expecting different things of each other. And then nobody feels like they can meet that bar. It's not written. It's not clear. Mm. So I'd say that's the first thing is we need to tell people what we expect. And I, and I have some clients will say like, well, we expect that people can have healthy conflict. That's an important part of of showing up to work here. And we have to interrogate who are you going to receive conflict from? Mm -hmm. What happens when black women disagree with you? Is that something that you would consider healthy, right? And how are you going to have a reaction mm-hmm. that says, do more of that, Black women? Give me more of that feedback because your perspective is helping us create a better outcome. And usually the messaging that Black women get is, Shh, don't say that. Don't say You're it like that. Aggressive. You're being too aggressive. You know, I, I, had, I had a really important moment in my career journey with a leader, um, who was looking out for me and their advice to me after a meeting with a big wig was, you can't say that to them. I said, well, I was just answering their question. Like they asked me and I gave my honest take on, on what the gap was. I said, yeah, you can't, you can't tell them that they don't have their stuff together. You can't say that. And so <laughs> the message I heard was, you're not allowed to be honest. It's too risky for you, black woman. Don't say the thing. And yet, yeah. We all know that if I'm not doing that, then I can't help us make a better outcome. You and I have riffed about this, right? And so someone that is a Ronderings guest, her episode will pop up in the Ronderings universe, our brilliant executive coach, Elsa Marquez. And this is something I've really unpacked with Elsa a lot, right? I think my experience of dealing with white leaders writ large in my professional experience is so I'll call my identity, right? My yeah. Asianness, whether I have decided upon it or not, I do have white adjacency. At least mm-hmm. my experience with Asianness. I do not speak mm-hmm. for the plethora of Asian Americans because some may not, frankly, right? Yeah. And I get that 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 also exists, right? Like expecting yeah. that black folks are mono, like oh, black people listen to hip hop. I'm like, nothing. <laughs> That's just not <laughs> true. I, I just. Like all Asians do martial arts. I'm like, I happen yeah. to, but we all Asians do. <laughs> and like, if you think about it, uh, there's, so there's so many moments where I was worried I was losing my black card. I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> there, there are some expectations, again, yeah. of how I'm supposed to operate as a black woman. Yeah. But I'm following you. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> and I found that because I have been in enough conversations with white people where I know they're telling me things they would never tell Trevani or Shanita mm-hmm, or Elsa mm-hmm. or Angelica. I just I lift it. Like, yeah, I, I'm not like, I think one of the things I realize is like, it's, it's always like understanding intent versus impact. You don't intend to be that way, but the impact of your comfort 
white people in my life generally, I see it. I think we do too. And us not acknowledging it is the problem, Yeah. right? Well, I, I think what I've learned is I have to learn how to make white people comfortable. That's like step one is you need to know me and trust me and get me and know that I don't blame you. I don't attack you. I understand how you feel, all the things you feel. It's that connection. I need to connect with you in a really real space. And then we could talk about the thing you wouldn't say to me, right? You would be nervous to say to someone who looks like me. <laughs> yeah, I, you're right. But, mm. So it's, I, you know, I can't just jump into the work and I'm intentional about it. And, and, and so are my clients. Like they, they want to get there, but that's, that's real emotional labor to think through. I don't want to get it wrong in front of this black woman who I've hired to help me get it right. Like I want to, I want her to know that I mean it, but I I think I got it wrong a few times. And is she going to judge me for that? And what I have to say is like, no, you're just doing what the systems were meant to do. Right. Like that's not on you. And yet it's on you once you know it to fix it. Bingo. Elsa said something really brilliant when I talked to her. Of course um, she did. <laughs> which I don't think, well, brilliant to me, but didn't end up on the podcast. But she shared with me some like leadership advice. She said, Ron, when I've managed people, I said like, look, I will sit with you. I will make sure you are good to go. But I really do expect you don't make the same mistake twice. Hmm. Is that a terribly high bar? I think some people think it would be. I don't think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Because I think so th- what comes with it, right, is you're giving people the support and resources and coaching and teaching that they need. I think that becomes yeah. the missing part. So absent of that, then upholding that value of being able to say, I don't expect you to, I don't want you to make the same mistake twice, then becomes really hollow, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're not providing people the opportunity, the space and the learning. And so, like, cause I think this is where the systems matter, right? Cause if you think about where performance management often goes off the rails, it's like, well, we value this, like work your ass off and figure it out. And those of you mm-hmm. that hate the extra hours and that might then overlap with certain identities, certain like things like, oh, I don't have a family, so I could just bust my ass, you yeah, know what I'm saying? Work, yeah. you know, it's like it, folks who might naturally have more of that space based on where they are in life and what messages they've gotten based on their identity and therefore the values that they carry, like yeah. that then shows up in the data, it muddies the data. Right. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of what you're talking about, Trevani, is like, how do we, I, I think, reinvent performance management where I would like to say, in Ron's perfect world, organizations are being honest about what resources support they're giving. So I'm mm-hmm. not foolish enough to think that every org is going to do this at what high level that I think they should have or you think they should have. Right. I'm just like, be explicit about yeah. that. And therefore, be, be explicit about how you are then assessing people and how they can grow and develop. That's it. Just be yeah. honest. Like you should say in this org, we're just not about growth and development. So therefore we're going to pay you as such. And therefore we're assessing you as such. And like, yeah. and, and therefore we're not going to like hold it against you when things happen or things don't, you know what I'm saying? I just think, you know, for me, like I would rather like, let's unwind this shit and just be really honest about like, yeah. I got the time. I don't value it. I, I would rather you say that. And I'm like, no, I value it. And then like, wait a second, you haven't changed the, we don't actually, how many times have organizations come to you? Oh, we haven't had a formal performance manager system since the beginning of this org. I'm like, get yeah. like, really? Like, that's just, yeah. and 
who does that end up uh, impacting? Folks like us. Yep. Like it just becomes yep. like really, 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 really. Like that's just. <laughs> you said so much good stuff there. My my brain's going a few places. I think one aspect of my identity that is really central is is the mom, right? Mm. I want to be able to do homework with my kids, to drop them at all their sports, to be at every game, to listen when they've had a bad day, an emotional day, like mm. that's a very important part of who I want to be. Right. And so from a very early point in my motherhood journey, it started to affect what I was willing to do at work. And then my identity as a worker, right? As a worker, I was a grinder the way you just named, right? And so I would attribute my success to my willingness to grind and to push through, even though I was exhausted, right? Like that's who I was. Right. And, and if the intent now is to make space for my family and my children, then I started to ask different things of my employer. Like, what do you actually expect me to accomplish in a year? What does success look like in nine weeks? What is the bar? What do you want to be true? What does it look like when I hit it, right? Make that very clear for me. And then get out of the way. <laughs> Let me figure out how I get there once you've made the bar very clear. And if I do it differently than, than you would, I need that to be okay. Right. Because that's the value of someone who has a different life experience than you being a part of this organization. And what happens when we still expect people to do it the way we did it, then it feels like it only works for certain people, right? So I found I had a really hard time in jobs that expected me to commit ridiculous amounts of hours towards no goal. Like, we're just going to throw hours at a thing because that's how we demonstrate dedication and commitment to the work. Right. And what I want to see actually is, what, what should I be doing? <laughs> what, what is the bar? What change should I see in my work and in the world for me to know that I've done enough? Because when I hit that, I'm going to stop and go love on my family. And right. I need to know what that is. And so mm. what I find is we weed people out with expectations of grind culture when we're not willing to pause and figure out what the bar is. And that is very harmful for people who, like you said, don't have hours and hours to throw at the work. But it's actually harmful for everyone. I think yeah. single people want to like go have hobbies and maybe they yeah. want to pursue relationships with others, right? We assume because they aren't caregivers that they don't have other things to do. And I think this workforce is actually not tolerant of that. I think yeah. 20 years ago, you could get away with telling people, oh, this is what success looks like. Mm -hmm. And what's hard for employers these days is the workforce has some power now. There has been a shift they in sure where power do. sits. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, I, and it's uncomfortable to have to tailor to a workforce, but, but they're not wrong, right? The way we've been doing yeah. it did not work for most people. Uh, and one of my favorite conversations with Elsa was she said to me, Trevani, you need to find a wife. You're an executive, and, and the workforce was built for executives who have wives. And unfortunately, that's me. <laughs> and so I, I can't juggle all of those things. And so I need clarity on what success looks like. Otherwise, I have no way of getting to it. And it becomes unfair to uphold you to a standard that doesn't exist because then anything could then be used against you, you which has been you done particularly to Black women, right? You know, just like, 
well, no, we didn't talk about it, but oh, let me have this arbitrary because I don't like the way you're making me feel. I'm really uncomfortable. Oh my God, I'm going to start crying because your body made me. <laughs> I mean, we've seen that playbook yeah. way too many times, you know? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, again, back to this, this idea of access. If I, if I know what I want to do in the world, I want to create a thing that doesn't exist. I know it means I need access and I have to show up a certain way to get that. You got to tell me what that is. <laughs> you got to tell me what that is. Otherwise, I'm feeling like this doesn't, this, this place isn't going to make space for me. So getting explicit about our expectations and unpacking what it means we value really goes a long way to, to allow a diverse workforce to thrive. And if you don't do that, it's, it's going to be harmful for everyone, but much more harmful for people who, who have different backgrounds than ours. Yeah. It feels like it's the white supremacist playbook, right? To not be clear about anything. Well, I don't think it's the intent, right? I think it's more so that they have, the system hasn't had to be clear because we weren't making decisions that way. We were making decisions based mm -hmm. off people we connect with. Like, I vibe with you. You're a cool person. You could probably do this job. Come, yeah, join me and my team. Yeah. There was not an assessment of competency until people like me enter the workforce. And now we have to actually evaluate skills. And we weren't doing that before, but now we have to, right? And so I think it does leave some people feeling like, well, if they had to evaluate me on this skill, I don't actually have it. <laughs> and would I have gotten this job? Maybe, maybe not. Yeah. And for others, it's, it's, it's a pathway. It's like, wow, if they are evaluating skill and they're going to get clear about what those skills are, I probably could do this. Yeah. You know, to speak about evaluating skill before we end and ask you about your rondering for the audience is something that I've thought about in my time at Agility Consulting and us getting a lot clearer with what the equity leadership competency looks like when we are assessing mm -hmm. leaders. Mm -hmm. And admittedly, post George Floyd's murder, I think we did have an uptick of clients who sought us out, honestly, because of our results in placing leaders of color, which has been 80% over the last three years. And mm -hmm. I think our diverse team, you see the photos, and yeah. also, I think the commitment we've all had, right? Because I think you don't get hired into agility certainly on client services, to be clear, right? Because I think that's yeah, where, yeah. you know, um, without that deep commitment. And what I have seen in my experience in assessment, you know where I'm going here if I'm talking <laughs> equity leadership, right? Is uh, yeah, yeah. Now, where that bar is based on where the organization is and what the hiring manager deems as their expectation, if I get, this isn't oversimplifications, but I'm just going to oversimplify for the sake of argument, right? And the sake of yeah. like making a statement is that white leaders in my experience have had a tough time being able to meet that equity leadership bar because they have not really had to examine themselves writ large mm -hmm. on their identity and therefore what systems work they've had to do, right? Mm -hmm. And... Yeah. On the flip side of it too, right? Equity leadership is also one of those things, depending where an org is, right? You know, someone that is actively creating dismantling systems. Let's be clear. Not every leader of color feels courageous enough or safe enough in said environment to be able to do that. They may have all the ideas. That's often what I found. It's like, 
Yeah. I know what to do, but if I would have done that, I would never job. I got bills to pay. I got a family to feed. I'm like, oh, I get that, fam. Right. And so yeah. there is this uh, tension around the folks who come into spaces, interviews, hiring processes that can provide that evidence. Like, who does that advantage? Who does that not yeah. advantage? Right. It's exactly. really fascinating. Right. And I don't think we've really interrogated it as a firm, but I'm interrogating it here because this is the Roderick's yeah. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, with what we should be doing for sure. Um, I think man, this who is advantages and disadvantages piece is very salient because what it might mean is if I change the system, I might not earn this seat. If the system were different, would I be deserving of this seat? And, you know, I have found that a lot of times the answer is still yes. The answer is like, yes, you are still skilled for this seat. But now the pathway is clear where you can start to see, oh, other people could do this. And I think it, it does change where some people are feeling set apart, special, separated, unique. They lose a bit of that uniqueness because it, you know, we've leveled the playing field. But isn't that the point? Isn't that the point that everyone could make some space? And I think it's hard to imagine going through a system that was built for everybody and wondering if you would still make it to the top. That's That's got to be a really uncomfortable space. So I think, I don't know that it's that people haven't reflected on their identity. In some cases, I think the people who are farthest who are earliest in their equity journey are the people who have and know what it means and, mm. and therefore aren't willing to change it. If I change this, that doesn't advantage me. I know how I got this job. I know how I got this down. Place. Right. Those mm. are the people that I really have a hard time processing with because they understand it. I think the people who are earlier in their journey and realize like, if, if going through this means I'm not special, it's not worth it. That's, that's, that's a non-starter for me. It's really hard for me to empathize and create grace and space and comfort to do the work. When people say, like, you know, maybe I would be a good fit for the work if we were using a, a more fair system, and maybe I wouldn't, and that's okay. We right. talk about that. I can get down with that, right? Like, all right, cool. And so what does it mean? What do we do going forward so that mm. the people who are feeling left out don't all have the same identity? Because that can't be cool. The people who get in have the same identity and the people who are left out of the same identity are doing something wrong. Right. I don't yeah, know if that makes sense. I'm just processing that. that no, I, I mean, it does, okay. right? Because I think there's a tendency in every system I've ever seen in my lived experience of 47 years is that you blame the people for results. So why are all of these black women experiencing that around not mm -hmm. feeling like they're being heard? It's like, well, it just very well may be because black women are loud and not really like, it's like, but why is the responsibility put on black women to be able to fix the system around mm -hmm. how they are 
experiencing the system that is oppressed. Like it's 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 so bizarre to me, and yet that I think you can fill in the blank with any I think marginalized group and say a very similar thing. It's just like yeah. oh, um, the way that Jeremy Lin was seen when Lin Sanity came started to uplift all these stereotypes of Asian American men. Oh, they're not athletic. Oh, wait a second. He's a lot. He's he's faster than I thought he was. He, I'm just yeah. like. Really, and like my ego says, I'm like, motherfuckers seen me work out? I don't know. I, I'm like, please, I'm shit. <laughs> I don't know what bubble you live in, but I know when I step yeah. in these places, people are like, oh, oh, he. Well, if you only know a handful of people in that identity group, then you, like you said, your brain starts to, to decide that this is what that identity group does. Yeah. Right? And if you are from the, the small town where I grew up, I was the only black person you knew, right? Like, yeah. so- The 90s, yes, they're all black people. Yeah, like all black people have pretty long curly hair because Trevani does, right? Like, so it's a, it's a little bit about exposure. You need to know people and you need to talk to them and you need to understand their experience. And so I sit with that sometimes where I feel like it's not my, it's not my thing to solve. And yet, Tyson, Micah, Layla, yep. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. if I don't, who will, right? And if I don't create space for people who have been advantaged by these systems to feel seen and heard and valued in their learning, who will? Who, who is going to make it safe to have a conversation with a Black woman about their experience? Mm. You know, there's not a long line of us lined up ready to take that brunt. And yet, I've seen the power of it. I've seen people really work through it and then change their system and then send me an email later saying, hey, guess what? We love our new internal hiring process that mm-hmm. I feel seen and heard and valued. Yeah. Guess what? We were about to post this role, but we paused to see if, that, if someone in our diverse junior level staff could be a good fit for this first. And it went such a long way. Like, guess what? We were about to just promote this person that we really like. And, and we paused to see, like, actually, what are the skills? And now, and now there are three people who are a good fit for that job, and we didn't even realize it. So I've seen the power of creating that safe space that says, I don't judge you for running a system the way systems have always been built. Mm. Let's figure out how identity is shaping people's experience in your organization. Let's create some policy. Right, like back, walk your talk. <laughs> Let's create some policy like a, like that says, "Listen, walk your talk." If you if you say you care about mm-hmm. a, an organization that makes space for everybody, your policies need to shift, and the way you get things done can't be about urgency and speed and perfectionism. They have to be about inclusion, and that means listening, and that means changing your behavior. And so when I when I get to see it happen, and you know. I have the best clients. <laughs> I have the best clients because they come ready to do the work. I see the impact of that. And so I'm willing. It's hard. It's heavy. It's exhausting. And who else is going to do it? Who else is going to build a thing that doesn't exist? Trevani, what rondering do you want to leave the audience? What lesson or story? There's so much rich stuff that we said. So you can pull from elevating something you said, a, a riffing on what you said, or something totally different. Yeah. 
I had a thought coming into the conversation. I was like, oh, I'm going to be on rondering. What's my rondering? I was like, <laughs> ready for this, right? I'll get I you. I think about it for Don't days. worry. Yeah. I know. <laughs> And so I'll tell you, I'll tell you too. How about that? I'll tell you the thing that I okay. thought I was going to say and the thing that's emerged from chatting with you today. The thing I thought I was going to say is be intentional about your impact. I think whether you know it or not, your impact is felt. The way you show up is felt by other people. And it doesn't matter if you intend it. It's felt. And so what you can do is just decide how do I want to show up? What's the impact I want to have? And backwards plan, right? It, it might mean you have to change your attitude. It might mean you have to change your behavior. But you can't just assume that even if you have the best intentions, your impact is going to follow. That's not how it works. So I would say that's what I came in here thinking I'd land on. The thing that is bubbling up is really loud for me. It's just that everybody deserves access. And we're in each other's way more often than not. But I wonder how, to what extent people believe that. That's like, that's core. Do you actually believe that everyone deserves access? I think there's, there's probably a handful of people who might say like access is earned, right? Like you will get access when you earn it. And then I would encourage them to acknowledge that access is blocked actually mm. for, for lots of people no matter how deserving they are. And so how do we create access? Give people a chance, give people a shot. There are lots of moments in my, in my career journey where I was like, man, if you just take a risk on me, I'm gonna grind, I'm gonna do the hard work, I'm so committed, but, I'm, but I've heard no. Sorry, we're not willing to take a risk on you, you don't have the right pedigree. Mm. And when I ask, like, what are the skills that I need? What's the knowledge that I need? I'll go get that. They're like, well, we hadn't thought about that yet. Just a like, way oh, to block okay. you from coming to the door. It just you didn't just didn't want me to have that. That's it. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You just need to figure out what do people need to be good at, and then you might open your eyes to who could be good at the thing. Yeah. So I don't know which of these you land with, <laughs> but those were the two that came up for me. They both absolutely resonate with me. You're going to have to come back as a repeat guest of Ronda. Um, I'd love to. <laughs> we're going to see how this all evolves because, you know, I do have, you know, big cojones dreams of doing this and selling out Madison Square Garden and having it. Uh -oh. something that's, you know, um, with the people who I love and care about personally, professionally. And then on occasion, you know, oh, hi, Oprah. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, hello. Like, well, just call, just get the Migos first, on, and then I have a car for you. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Oprah, if you're listening you're to this, I'm, I'm kidding, not kidding. You could be a guest on Rodrigues. I'd love to have you. You're a mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think dream big, friend, and make sure nobody's blocking your access. I want that for you. I want that for me and my beautiful wife and my two girls too. So. Thank you, Trevani, for being a guest on Ronderings. We got more amazing guests coming. So peace out, fam. Bye. Kyle Trevani Mackey, you blew my mind with how you've used your lived experience to be able to create pathways 
create access for others in the work you do, not only at Agility Consulting, but you've done in your entire life and when you started in the classroom as a Teach for America core member in Atlanta. It's really grateful we had this conversation. I love what you left with the audience, your two renderings, being intentional about impact that everybody deserves access. I don't think we interrogate those things enough with our systems and with our leaders. Because I don't think everybody creates systems where it shows that everybody deserves access, right? It often becomes you deserve access because of who you're connected to, you were, where you went to school, where you worked. And so thank you, Trevani, for elevating these things for us and for your Black woman magic. Ronderings out.